Good morning. Today is uh, February 5, right? Did you know that uh, February 5 is the day of the superb owl? Right? The New England Patriots and the Giants, they're playing in the superb owl. Okay, that was Dave McKinney's joke, not mine. Her McDonald's joke. Dave, what's your last name? Dave McDonald's joke, right? Super Bowl, superb owl. Okay, uh, there's nothing funnier in my entire sermon, so <laughs> you better. <laughs> Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday, and um, one of my goals this morning with you all is uh, to try to give you something to talk about with others uh, at your Super Bowl party today. So uh, listen for that. Today, um, today is the first of not one, but two Sundays where we're going to take a look at the prophet of Isaiah in our drive-by series on some of these prophets. This week of preparation, um, I had um, uh, periodically, I just started laughing because I just started laughing and shaking my head of, yeah, I'm going to cover Isaiah, you know, in two 90-minute sermons. You know, there's just no way, two 30-minute sermons, there's just no way that I can do that. But, but I'm going to try, and uh, maybe sometimes when there's a quick flyby, we get a better appreciation of the forest, you know, rather than each individual tree. So it's the forest method of teaching and preaching that we're doing in this series on the prophets. You know by now, from past weeks in our study of Amos, Hosea, and Micah, that every prophet, and it's almost by definition because it's so common and it's so foundational, that every prophet warns against idolatry, and especially that idolatry of self that shows up in the form of abusing others. Every prophet. And Isaiah is no exception. But with Isaiah, I want to take a tangent to that underlying message. Although idolatry and abuse of others is in this one too, just not as directly. And for the next two weeks, I'd like to focus on two famous passages in Isaiah, one this week and one next week. And even while these passages are famous, they're also rather infamous just in the amount of debate and discussion that they've generated over the centuries and are even kicking up their heels and generating today. And so I hope in looking at these famously infamous passages the next two weeks to deepen our understanding of these passages and maybe better equip us to enter into that debate. Or in, Peter were, in the Apostle Peter's words, to better equip us to give that hope, to give that reason for our hope in God's Word and in God. To introduce the passage for this morning, I'd like to ask you to come with me. Come with me on a journey. Come with me as we go all the way back to the land of Israel 2,700 years ago. 
When we get there, we find that we're in the time where Israel has divided into two, two kingdoms, ten tribes in the northern kingdom. The Bible still often calls Israel or Ephraim after its most important or significant tribe. And then two tribes in the south, the southern kingdom, which the Bible often calls Judah after its bigger tribe. And so come back with me to that time of the divided kingdom. The year is 735 B.C. And the king of Israel in the north, his name is Pekah, King Pekah. I thought when I came across Pekah, Pekah must mean bird, right? Pekah! Sounds like a verb. But I looked it up, and it it means open-eyed, doesn't mean bird, although open-eyed like a bird. No. King Pekah is king of the ten tribes in the north of Israel, of Ephraim. And King Ahaz is king of the southern tribe of Judah, or the southern tribes called Judah. Ahaz means God holds, or whom God holds in the year of 735 B.C. And we find when we travel back to this time that King Ahaz of Judah has a serious problem. He is, as they say, between a rock and a hard place because his northern cousins, King Pekah and the ten tribes, are trying to overthrow his kingdom of Judah, and the threat is imminent. And to make matters worse for Ahaz, King Pekah has done the unthinkable. He has formed an alliance with Israel's enemy, Aram, or we might say Syria, or its capital city, Damascus. And so the northern kingdom of Israel has formed an alliance with Syria to defeat Judah. And King Ahaz is worried. He's very worried because his army of Judah cannot withstand the combined forces of Israel and Syria. And so, oh my goodness, what should we, he do? And we find King Ahaz there, wrestling with what to do. And we discover that out of his desperation, we see that King Ahaz is considering an alliance himself with Assyria, the rising power in the east. Remember in the Bible, you have to keep your Syrians and your Assyrians separate, two different kingdoms. And so Ahaz is thinking about asking Assyria for help. Ahaz figures it's his only chance to team up with Assyria or be conquered by Israel, Syria. What should he do? God, of course, sees all of this unfolding, And so he sends his prophet Isaiah, which means the Lord saves, very similar to Jesus, the meaning of Jesus' name. He sends Isaiah, the Lord saves, to Ahaz, the one whom God holds, urging Ahaz to stand firm in the grip of God. Be true to his name, telling Ahaz that The Israel-Syria alliance isn't going to defeat you, Ahaz. 
And so Ahaz, do not go to Assyria for help. You don't need their help. Believe me, you don't want their help because Assyria helps themselves. You only need me, God says to the one he holds, Ahaz. Trust me, Ahaz. Trust that I indeed hold you. Help is on the way. Stand firm in your faith. But we see that Ahaz is not convinced. His faith has gotten to the point where he can't begin to believe or to trust that much. And so God, wanting to help Isaiah in his faith, sends I, uh, help Ahaz and his faith, sends Isaiah a second time. And this time invites Ahaz to ask God for a sign. God comes to Ahaz through Isaiah and says, okay, Ahaz, listen, just ask me. Ask me for a sign. Ask me anything. What will prove it to you, Ahaz, that what I told you is true? What will convince you that the Israel-Syria alliance won't defeat you? What's going to convince you that you don't have to run to Assyria for help but just trust in me? Go ahead, Ahaz, God says. Ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign that will convince you right here and right now to trust me. And remarkably, Ahaz's response to God's open invitation to ask for any sign, Ahaz says, no thanks. His faith is so weak, he's to the point now that he can't even think of anything that would get him to trust God that much. So, no thanks. I don't want a sign. Wouldn't do any good. But we see that God is gracious and He's merciful and He wants to reach out to the one whom He holds, Ahaz, and help him with his little faith. And so God picks His own sign and gives Ahaz a sign anyway. And I'll bet when I read to you from God's Word what this sign is, that you've heard it before. But I'd also wager that most of us, many of us, have never heard it before in this immediate context of Ahaz and his problem. But now we know the Paul Harvey rest of the story as we listen in this morning to the sign God gives to Ahaz to encourage Ahaz to sit tight in his problems and to trust God against the threat from the north, here's the sign to Ahaz. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, before he grows up, probably 12 years old in that culture where he's expected to know between right and wrong, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread, Pekah in Syria, will be laid waste. 
The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Not as an ally Ahaz, but as judgment, and he will take out the two kings you dread Ahaz. And that's the original context of that famous passage. Ever hear that in context before? Many of us have probably heard that passage before, taken out of its immediate context with King Ahaz. The very first part of it, at least, that I've got up on the screen, right? It makes a regular appearance each Christmas because Matthew quotes it and ties it to Jesus' birth. But have you heard this passage in the context of King Ahaz before? It doesn't often get read in its immediate context in Isaiah. Because Christmas simply overwhelms it. And I think sometimes Christian teachers shy away from the immediate context of that prophecy. And the reason they shy away from it is, well... We so badly want to present the prophecy as it is, a prophecy about Jesus, that if we talk about that prophecy in terms of Isaiah's problem and his two kings, that that somehow will take away from the prophecy pointing to Jesus. And so you won't often find that prophecy, at least I didn't when I looked, taught and preached in context. But here's the thing. Those teachers who shy away from the immediate context, or maybe if you feel that worry yourself as I start talking about more this prophecy in its original context, they don't need to worry about that, about it taking away from pointing to Jesus because of something called multiple fulfillment of prophecy. This is how multiple fulfillment works. Multiple multiple fulfillment of prophecy is where a prophetic word in the Bible is partially fulfilled, imperfectly, but partially fulfilled, and maybe partially fulfilled several times through history leading up to and pointing to the time when it is completely and perfectly fulfilled. That's multiple fulfillment of prophecy. And so it's okay if this prophecy in Isaiah 7 speaks directly to Ahaz and his problem with Israel and Syria. It can and still does point to Jesus as its ultimate complete fulfillment. We don't have to cover our ears to the possibility that this passage also speaks immediately to Ahaz. And clearly, when we look at the context, when we look at the Word of God surrounding that verse... When we look at the context, clearly it's a sign to Ahaz and his immediate problem. 
And you know, it really wouldn't be much of a sign to poor Ahaz if the sign was only referring to Jesus, right? I mean, you pretend you're Ahaz. If this sign only refers to Jesus, and that's it, there's no multiple fulfillment as I've defined it, if it's only Jesus, then God is telling Ahaz something like this. Hey, Ahaz, here's how you can trust me with that imminent threat of Israel and Syria breathing down your neck. Here's how you can trust me. 700 years after you die, (laughs) I'll do something about it to prove to you that you can trust me right now. How's that sound, Ahaz? Does that sound like that'd be encouraging to someone who is struggling with faith? And it is clear in the passage that the sign is supposed to give confidence to Ahaz regarding the two kingdoms coming against him. Because here's what they say about that boy, Emmanuel. Right there. Before the boy grows up, the land of the two kings you dread, Pekah and Syria, will be laid waste. So for Ahaz at least... The next question becomes in his immediate context, well, what or who is the fulfillment of this sign? Who's the boy here? Who is this at least little I, Emmanuel, God with us for Ahaz and his immediate problem? And Isaiah, in the balance of his amazing book, goes on to suggest three possibilities. The first one you don't have to wait very long for. He's born in the very next chapter, Isaiah 8. And he's Isaiah's son, who I'm pretty sure has the longest name in all of Scripture. Mahal Shalal Hashbaz. We'll call him Mahal for short. And it seems very clear in its literary context that Isaiah is following the sign in chapter 7 and then telling us the story of its fulfillment in this boy, Mahal, in the very next chapter. Makes sense that Isaiah would continue his thought. And after giving Ahaz the sign, Isaiah then writes, Then I, Isaiah, went to the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Before the boy grows up, Damascus and Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. That tracks pretty closely with the sign in chapter 7, doesn't it? Now, you may be thinking, I know I did, Jewish scholars especially immediately recognize there are problems with Mahal completely matching the sign that God gives Ahaz, isn't there? First of all, there's that virgin thing. But the Hebrew word there in Isaiah for virgin is Alma. Say Alma. Alma in English means young maiden without children. There is a Hebrew word for a literal virgin that's betula. Say betula. But betula isn't used in chapter 7. Rather, alma is used, young maiden without children. Not necessarily a literal virgin in Hebrew. But that still doesn't clear Mahal because Mahal is Isaiah's second son. 
And so that doesn't even satisfy Alma. Fails the Alma test. And so, for this reason, Jewish tradition comes along and holds that the prophetess was Isaiah's second marriage. And so Mahal could be born of Alma. But even if Mahal passes the Alma test, there are still many other problems with Mahal being the complete sign, the capital I, Emmanuel, describes in chapter 7. The most troubling problem is that in chapter 9, we learn that the chapter 7 boy will sit on David's throne. And Mahal never does. So Mahal is at best a partial fulfillment, an echo, if you will, of the prophecy in chapter 7. And maybe Isaiah senses that because Isaiah gives us a second possibility. He raises for this sign boy, this Emmanuel in chapter 7, King Hezekiah, Ahaz's nephew, who takes the throne after Ahaz. And there are some strong literary ties between Isaiah chapters 36 through 38, where Isaiah talks about Hezekiah, strong word choice, phrase choice that echo back to the chapter 7 boy. And Hezekiah certainly sits on David's throne. But like Mahal, Hezekiah is at best a partial fulfillment of the sign in chapter 7. For one, Hezekiah was born before the sign was given to Ahaz. So that's not a complete match. And as good and as righteous as Hezekiah was, he still never completely fulfilled the Messianic hope described in the Old Testament. And that brings us to the third possibility in Isaiah. For the sign boy in chapter 7, at least for its immediate context in the day of Ahaz and his problems. And that's the servant of the Lord. And whoa, does Isaiah expound on the servant of the Lord. You'll find him throughout Isaiah 40 through 66. And Isaiah has the servant of the Lord anonymous. Interesting. But many things about him link back to the sign in chapter 7. It's almost as if Isaiah sitting there in his ministry, a long ministry, 50, 60 years, unusually long for a prophet, it's almost as if Isaiah is sitting back and he's realizing, you know, my own son Mahal, Hezekiah, partial fulfillment of that great sign in Isaiah 7, but they haven't completely fulfilled it. And so Isaiah then spends chapter after chapter after chapter talking about this servant of the Lord. And I want to talk about the servant of the Lord next week, but for this morning's purposes... The servant of the Lord points so directly at a future Messiah, points so directly at Jesus, that when Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7, we finally learn that Jesus is indeed that complete fulfillment of the sign in chapter 7. Jesus is the Emmanuel. And that's a look at that famously infamous passage in Isaiah 7, in its immediate context. Now, 
I've no doubt that perhaps this idea of multiple fulfillment of prophecy is new to many of us. Why bring it up? What can it mean to us? I think three things. First, when we allow for and look for and leave room for multiple partial fulfillment, it doesn't take away from that expectation or longing for the complete fulfillment in Jesus. It builds it. It adds to it. As each would-be sign comes along in this context, whether Mahal or Hezekiah, it's like, well, yeah, kind of. But isn't there something more? There must be something more. And it builds that expectation. It points even more clearly by its failure in being everything we'd ever dreamed of that God's promises. It raises in us even more a level of just not quite satisfied. But you know, the sign sounded a whole lot better. And it points even harder and more to the future. And the second one is related. Partial fulfillment of prophecy is also a huge sign of God's love and grace and mercy. Jewish scholars look at multiple fulfillment as God giving us through time, giving his people through time, a reminder, a reassurance that he hasn't forgotten his promise. See, here it is, echoed in history. Right there. I haven't forgotten. He's still coming. All of history even. Because when the Lord Almighty, the Creator God, makes a promise, the ripples even in His history just go out, boom, 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 boom. And history can't help but echo it in some way because the promise is so strong and so powerful and so sure. And it's a wink. It's a hug. It's an affirmation that God hasn't forgotten. We covered this a couple of years ago when I was talking about Genesis 3. Remember? Genesis 3, God makes a promise and it's regarded as prophetic. A descendant of Eve will come that will crush the serpent's head. Remember? And then some years pass, thousands of years pass, and David shows up. And he's pitted against Goliath, who the text tells us his armor is like the scales of a snake. And David throws a stone. And the text is careful to tell us how that stone and where that stone hits. Hits him in the head, doesn't bounce off, but the Hebrew there, it bores into his skull. David, a descendant of Eve, crushing a serpent's head. <gasps> is that a fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis 3? Yes! Partially. And Jews do a dance. Oh my goodness, look, 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 look. There it is. God hasn't forgotten what he promised Eve. Oh, when will the one be that comes and does it once and for all forever? And then a few more years pass. And this amazing woman named Yael, 
She has a tent and a cup of cold milk, warm milk. And a general fleeing a battle comes to take refuge in her tent. The general's name is Sisera. Sisera means snake. And Yael, whose name means Yahweh, Yahweh is God, she takes that tent stake. And what does she do with it? Drives it through the head of the snake. (gasps) Is that a fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis 3? Yeah! Partially. And God's people do a dance. Oh, look, ha, ha, yeah, all the story of Sisera. God hasn't forgotten his promise in Genesis 3. And so too with many biblical prophecies where multiple fulfillment is going on, including Isaiah chapter 7. Third, oh, and this one excites me the most of all. If we look at prophecy as being capable of being partially fulfilled, And we recognize that, yeah, God's promise can resound in history and all of history even will echo it and point all the more to Jesus. We can become a part of the fulfillment of that prophecy and see that prophecy fulfilled in our own lives every day. How many of you, if you've had a problem like dripping water, (laughs) have had someone come in Jesus' name who has God in them because of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, so God is with them, and they come to you and they are with you and help you with your problem? Little I, Emmanuel, to you? You benefit from the prophecy of Isaiah 7 becoming true in your life when someone helps you in Jesus' name. And you know what else? Whenever we go to someone in Jesus' name and God goes with us not to abuse the poor in worshiping self still is about idolatry. But when we go And we help someone in Jesus' name. We fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 7. And point them all the more to its complete fulfillment in Jesus. Isn't that cool? See, I want to blow the doors open a little bit on our understanding of prophecy. If you want to know my personal opinion, I don't think there's a word in the entire Bible that isn't prophetic. You say, ooh, what do you mean by that? The Bible tells us the truth about God. He tells us the truth about ourselves and the human condition. and tells us what life is going to be like in wrestling together with God against the evil. And lays it all out there, what our life will be like now, given the fall and given God's plan to rescue us. And lo and behold, when we live out our life and we look at the Bible, we go, oh, it's right! <laughs> Prophetic? P.S. Then the clock says I need to let you go. 
I want to weigh in on, since I've opened the door, on virgin birth discussion that sometimes Jesus birth. My hope is maybe this will better equip us to engage in this discussion. As even some Christians these days, they like to debate whether or not Mary was a literal virgin. For the life of me, I don't get that debate, especially among Christian brothers and sisters who have accepted that God can make everything from nothing. But then, well, we're not so sure Mary is a virgin. Really? God made everything from nothing? And he can't cause a young woman to become pregnant? So some Christians even these days are debating that. And they will point out, as I did, hey, that word in Isaiah is Alma. And that word means young maiden without children. Not necessarily a virgin. Isaiah had a perfectly good Hebrew word to use, betula, the Hebrew word for little virgin. And so they conclude, since Isaiah chose Alma, and since that prophecy is only about Jesus... Oh, they missed multiple fulfillment. (gasps) That it's possible Mary wasn't a literal virgin. But here's what that analysis is sorely missing in my strong opinion and how you might respond. One, they totally missed the possibility of multiple fulfillment. And two, get this. A few hundred years after Isaiah was written, Jewish scholars translated Isaiah into Greek. And we know this translation as the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into Greek. And when these Jewish scholars came to Isaiah chapter 7 and came to that word Alma, the Greek word they chose is Parthenos. Say Parthenos. And guess what? Say guess what? No, you know, you're supposed to say what? Parthenos is the technical, literal word for virgin. You say, get out. That's true. And guess what else? Say, what else? In Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, Matthew could either, and Matthew writes in Greek, Matthew could either quote the phrasing of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament in Hebrew, or, since the Septuagint had already been written, he could quote the Septuagint. Guess which one he picked to quote? The Septuagint, so Matthew uses Parthenos, literal virgin. See, these people who want to just focus on Isaiah and Alma, they'd stop there and say, guess what else? Say what else? Matthew doesn't leave it hanging on one word. He elaborates. He says, before Joseph and Mary came together, Mary was pregnant. Then he quotes Parthenos, literal virgin, and in case we miss it, he says again, Joseph had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son. And I ask you, especially those Christian brothers and sisters who want to quibble with this. How could Matthew possibly be any clearer? And this discussion 
on the literal virginity of Mary I'm offering to you as a possibility to talk about during your Super Bowl parties. <laughs> See, we equip you for everything here at West And you say, oh, that's just a joke. How is that going to come up at the Super Bowl? Well, who's coming out at halftime? Madonna. And while the NFL won't let her sing this song, praise God, what's the, one of the very first songs, if, was it that one or was it Material Girl? I, what's one of the songs she wrote? Like a Virgin. See, now this could be God's opportunity. The takeaway that I'd love for you to take from you today as you explore this amazing Bible, God's Word, and as you consider, at least in your own study and reflection in life, what multiple fulfillment can do. Takeaway is you and I, we, we get to be part of prophecy. In a partial, incomplete way, that points to Jesus. Wow like a New Testament message in the Old Testament. Go figure. We can fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 7. And we can see it fulfilled in our lives in Christian community. Praise God, yes? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do indeed praise you. Thanks for the honor and privilege and fun it's been to look at these prophets of old. Oh, Father, help us to see and to know that your promises are real, not only one day in the future, but right now, every day, in the midst of whatever it is we're going through or others are going through, that your prophetic word can come true on a daily, shadowing, echoing basis of what Jesus ultimately has done and will do, but can come true today. Oh, how merciful and gracious you are to not leave us stranded in waiting only for the ultimate relief, but giving us with the indwelling of yourself, your present God with us indeed, and enabling and partnering with us to go to others and be God with them you and us together. Thanks for that incredible blessing, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. Would you stand please for the benediction, God's words, his blessing. These words come from Isaiah chapter 9. Where Isaiah is beginning to think more about this sign boy in chapter 7. And you know these words too, I'll bet, or you've heard them. Listen to Isaiah's assurance. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, 
and of his government in peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And Isaiah adds an amazing P.S. of his own. Listen to the name that he uses for God here. How can we know that this will be accomplished? Isaiah says, The zeal, the passion of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, you better believe it's going to happen, people of God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Enjoy the Super Bowl. God bless you all.